Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Hebrews chapter number five. Hebrews chapter number five. Uh, we have been reading in the book of Hebrews. I think maybe today was chapter six or yesterday. It gets kind of hazy in my mind. Or you may be somewhere else completely, and that's fine. But if you're on the correct path, which is mine, uh, then you've read Hebrews 6 through today. Anyway, we're going to spend a few weeks in Hebrews. Um, and Hebrews is a, a somewhat challenging letter just because of the context and who it was written to. And so uh, we certainly have to be a little careful when we're interpreting uh, and, and, and exegeting some of the text uh, in the letter to the Hebrews. And we're going to, uh, in particular, deal with a somewhat controversial uh, text tonight. And so uh, on my notes, it says that it's going to take me 49 minutes if I was to read it. But don't worry, I'm going to skip a lot of things. Uh, we don't have time to cover everything that's here, and so some people would tell me, well, maybe you should have broke that up, or maybe you should do something different. Well, I just think to understand the controversial part of this text, we need to look at all of it, and so we'll spend a little brief time on the outskirts, and then hopefully be able to get through some of the meat of the difficult portions that happen in Hebrews chapter number 6. But anyway, uh, we're going we're gonna to camp out uh, in the, the letter to the Hebrews for a little bit tonight. When I was working, uh, studying on this text, I, everything that I was reading and studying kept making me think about when my kids were born and how everything about them was measured, right? Those of you who have had kids, you may remember this moment. Matter of fact, both of my kids were C-sections, and so Kayla didn't get to experience any of those moments. And so I got to kind of walk around with them and see everything that was happening and trying to take mental notes of what I knew she was going to ask me about and all that kind of stuff. But I just remember, you know, their weight was important, their, their height, which, of course, was their length, which is funny to me. No one says, what length are you now, you know? But at that time, you know, whatever their length was, their feet, their hands, I mean, you name it, whatever it was, it was, it was measured. And really... Uh, they continued to be measured physically. I remember going and their head was like in this percentile, right, of the population, whatever that population is, baby population, I guess. This is the percentile that their head is in or their weight, right, or their length. This is the percentile um, that they make it into. As a matter of fact, I'll never forget one of the earlier times that we brought Josiah uh, to, the, to the doctor that became you know, his primary care or whatever. He was like three in this particular appointment that I remember or something like that. I'll never forget the doctor was talking about the percentile of Josiah's weight. Now, if you've met Josiah, he's pretty, you know, he's pretty uh, stout. Let's say that. I don't, I don't know another way to describe that really. But even when he was little, he's always kind of had like a bowling ball, run through a wall kind of frame to him. He's always been a little, a little thick. But I'll never forget, he's, he's three years old, by the way. And the doctor's talking about the percentile, you know, of the population that he's in. And the doctor used the word obese. And I remember thinking, that's right, I said obese. My three-year-old, sir, is not obese, all right? Um, anyway, I, I remember getting so upset about it, even saying something to the doctor. Kayla's embarrassed. I told her, I said, we will not use this doctor again. She's like, he wasn't called, he called my son fat. Did you hear what he said, right? And so anyway, he, he really wasn't. He was just using a technical term for the percentile uh, of the population that Josiah was in. But anyway, we, we know those measurements are important, right? Especially when it comes to, you know, physical measurements. We know that those particular measurements let us know if something's not maturing right physically, uh, if something's wrong, if something's stunted. Like, we, we need those 
measurements. I think about the measurements that we have mentally. We all know about the amount of testing that kids go through. I was even thinking about adults, whether it's college or going back to school, or I remember not terribly long ago having to pass the CDL driver's test. You would think that's a no-brainer, but trust me, it's not a no-brainer. It does take a little bit of effort uh, to make that happen. Whether it's you know a particular test in class or statewide testing or even ACT or SAT testing, we know that those measurements, though they may be difficult and even our kids have no idea why or what or you know could they be doing anything else, we know those measurements are important. They make sure that we're progressing, developing, maturing the way that we should. Now, as you suspect... This kind of leads to, you know, thinking about the things that we measure, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, social, whatever it is. What about measuring our spiritual lives, right? Like, let that settle in for just a moment. We measure all these other things about maturity and growth, and, and is something stunted or not stunted? Are we, are we, you know, progressing the way that we should? How often do we measure our spiritual lives? We need measurements physically and mentally to make sure that we're maturing like we should. Don't we think that we need that spiritually too? Have we forgotten that this is just as important, if not more? Like when it comes to our kids, even ourselves, right? We get them ready for everything else in life. We get them ready for school. We get them ready for sports. We get them ready for relationships. I got, I got kids that are younger than Janelyn that we are friends with who are talking about their kid's boyfriend or girlfriend, and they're like five. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like, that's not even a thing. But we want to prepare them for all those things, right? We get them ready for all sorts of things in life. But what about their spiritual life? How much time do we spend training them spiritually? When it comes to physical, emotional, mental, social growth, when it's stunted, right? When it's halted, when it's stopped, we check out what's going on. Do we do that? when their spiritual growth is stunted or stopped or halted. The writer of Hebrews helps us think about this particular problem. He helps us think about our spiritual health. And it's in this context that the writer of Hebrews is talking about when we enter Hebrews 5, verse 11. Now listen, if you got a pen and you're taking notes, I'm about to move in hyperspeed. So I need you to go fast with me. A lot of content to cover, a lot of blanks to fill in, mainly for me, not for you. Helps me organize the content that I want to make sure you get tonight. But there's some particular things in the middle that I want us to be able to spend a little bit more heavy time on. So anyway, let me just point out a few of these things that the writer of Hebrews helps us to think about when it comes to our spiritual health. Here's the first one. He gives us a word to the weak. Now we're talking about spiritual maturity spiritual growth, spiritual development, the first thing the writer of Hebrews is going to mention, starting in Hebrews 5.11, is he's going to give a word to the weak. Here's what he says. Look at verse 11. If you have a Bible, just kind of camp out there. We're going to highlight a bunch of things. He, he writes, about this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, I want to pause here, and I, I wish we could read it all in its context, and then come back. But we really don't have the time for it, so we'll try to wrap a bow around it when we get to the end. But he's beginning this conversation with this phrase, this we have much to say. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's referencing uh, uh, several chapters in the content of Hebrews before we get into this moment. As a matter of fact, if we just jump one verse back, here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5.10. He says, being designated by God, a high priest... After the order of Melchizedek. 
Now, you may say that all sorts of different ways, but this is what the writer of Hebrews is referring to when he says, about this, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. The writer of Hebrews has been describing Jesus as our great high priest. You can go back to this beginning in Hebrews chapter 4, and you will discover this overall context. Now, let me say a couple things about Melchizedek. Let me say the main one. We don't know much about Melchizedek. As a matter of fact, when it comes to you and me and our studying and interpreting of the Bible, we probably will never really figure out who in the world this guy is. He's a high priest that's mentioned first in Genesis chapter 14 in connection with Abraham. This is when Abraham is, is blessed. He becomes the father of many nations. And this is where we typically find our first reference to a tithe because Abraham gives a portion of what he has in honor of his relationship with the kings that are there and Melchizedek. He's not mentioned again until Psalm 110, and then he's not mentioned again until the comparison with Jesus in the letter to Hebrews. In Hebrews, by the way, he's only mentioned two times in the Old Testament before we ever get to this moment. In the letter of Hebrews, he's mentioned eight times. So it's already you know, what, four times more than the entire Bible, all of it mentioned in the letter to Hebrews. Now, we don't know much about him. In fact, the comparison of Jesus, Melchizedek, high priest, that's kind of confusing language for us. But the audience of the Hebrews should have understood the comparison better than what the writer is suggesting that they understand. Here's the point I want to make to you as we begin this conversation. The reason why this is significant is not because of who Melchizedek was. It's not even the comparison of Jesus or the title of high priest. What's significant is that they should have understood, but they don't because they had not grown in their faith as they should have. Here's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making about spiritual growth. Their faith was weak. They had not grown to the point that at this place in their spiritual lives, they should have grown to. Now think about that for a moment. How many of us might need a word to the weak tonight? How many of us would say, I've been a Christian for 50 years, but I'm still not where maybe I should be at this point in my spiritual journey? Well, here is a word to challenge you. I won't say it's going to comfort you, not this one, but it will challenge you, the word to the weak. Let me show you exactly what we see from what the writer says. This is what he talks about with the weak in maturity. First of all, they never listen. This is a huge emphasis in Hebrews 5.11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He wants to tell them more. He wants to bring them deeper. He wants their faith to grow. He wants them to jump on board and get in the fight and be where he is so that the gospel can advance. But he can't. Why? Because they have become dull of hearing. Now, here's what that phrase means. It means lazy or sluggish. In other words, they hear, but they don't listen. How many of us have thought that with our children? I know they hear me, but they do not Listen, it's a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of irresponsibility. Think about your children when you have to tell them the same thing over and over again before they actually listen. This is the point in my life where I tell my kids they have to bring the mean out of me before they'll actually do what I said. I said it 10 times before I got mad, but because they didn't do it the first 10 times, the 11th time came with anger, right? They heard, 
but they did not listen. Or think about how frustrating it is to have to tell them the same thing to do this week that you told them last week that you've been telling them for the past five years. When will they learn? This is the conversation that the writer of Hebrews is having with the children of God in the context of Hebrews. They never listen. Guess what I told Josiah 10 days ago? Stop messing with your sister. Guess what I told him yesterday? Stop messing with your sister. Guess what I told him today? Stop messing with your sister. They never listen. That is the word to the weak. Let me show you this too, though. They also never learn. They're hearing it. You know they got it, but they still don't learn. He says, for though by this time, look at verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Ouch, right? But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. For though by this time, now think about that for a moment. Age should be an indicator of maturity. But what do we all know about that? Doesn't mean it has to be, right? You can get older and still not get better. You with me? Anybody testify to some of that truth? We all know people that haven't changed a bit in maturity, even though they've changed physically maturity, right, by getting older. Matter of fact, Elihu makes this clear to Job when those who were older than him didn't have any wisdom to provide Job. Here's what it says in Job chapter 32. Listen to these words. I said, he's given him advice, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. He's telling Job, go to those who are older than you. They'll give you wisdom. But then he says this, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. You know what he's saying? It's really not about age physically. It's about age between you and the Holy Spirit. How much time have you allowed the Holy Spirit to teach you the things of God? It's fascinating that the book of Hebrews was written more than 30 years after the birth of the church, yet there were still so many that had not grown in their faith. 30 plus years they've been diving into the truths about Jesus, yet they are no further along than when they first began. I love what William Barclay writes about the phrase basic principles. Here's what he compares it to. He says in grammar, it means the letters of the alphabet, the ABCs, still haven't got past singing that song. You've never put the letters into words. It's like a kid who can't ever speak, but he knows the letters of the alphabet, but he's 50 years old. See the problem? In physics, it means the four basic elements of which the world is composed. In geometry, it means the elements of proof, like the point and the straight line. In philosophy, it means the first elementary principles with which the students begin. It is the sorrow of the writer to the Hebrews that after many years of Christianity, his people have never got past the basics. They are like children who do not know the difference between right and wrong. Friend, think about this for a moment. Let this challenge your heart. You might be older now than you once were, but have you been transformed more now by the Holy Spirit? This group wasn't. Rather, the writer of Hebrews is pretty frank with them. Rather than being able to teach others, they still needed to be taught. They're like children. Matter of fact, we see this in several ways. Let me show them to you because i got to go quick, but you can fill in the blanks if you're obsessed like I am about getting those in there. Let me point these things out to you. It's seen in their appetite. What's seen in their appetite? 
how childlike they are. Here's what it says back in Hebrews 5.12. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he is a child. That's the highlight of this moment in their weakness. They're still children. But solid food is for the mature. Their appetite is like children. Did you catch what he calls them? Kids. They had all they needed to grow and mature, yet they chose to stay with the milk instead of moving to solid food. They had made a bad habit of staying right where they were. They had no desire to move deeper or grow more. How often does this happen in our own lives? How many of us would agree that we're not where we should be spiritually, not because of something that hindered us, but because of our own poor habits in our lives. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll wrote. He said, the phrase unskilled in the word of righteousness characterizes the inexperienced or new Christian. Just as a baby is unskilled when it comes to thinking, acting, and speaking in grown-up ways, immature believers continue to dwell on the basics of the Christian faith. You know what he's saying? I don't know if you ever saw this video. It's an old like right now media, before they were that, they were called like Bluefish TV or something like that in the Christian circle. But anyway, they made this silly little video about a 30-year-old man going back to kindergarten. And it was like, hey, man, you should be out working somewhere. You should have at least moved to the first grade right now. But he's like, no, this is comfortable. I like the reading circle. I like the naps during the day. I like my teacher who spoon feeds me everything. And it's a silly video. It is extremely laughable to watch that guy. He's shaving, and he's a kindergarten student. Like, it's so weird. But the comparison is to how many people spiritually are 50 years old spiritually, but they still act like a child. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The weak in the faith. It's seen in their appetite, their childlikeness. It's seen in their awareness. He said in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. He's talking about people who understand. They were lacking in understanding of what God wanted them to do. They had not grown to a point of discerning between right and wrong. They were like children. It's seen in their actions. By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Their practices were still like children. They're still being told over and over again. You don't get so mad about that when it's a three-year-old. You get extremely angry about it when they're older, right? They should know by now. But this is the characteristic of the weak in the faith. They never listen. They never learn. They never lead. They never move past. They don't grow to a point of doing what the Lord wants them to do. Look back at verse 12. For though by this time you ought, it's expected of you by this time. To, to do what? Look at what it says. To be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Let me just show you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that you should be leading a Bible study, or preaching a sermon. The writer of Hebrews is not saying that everyone should be pastoring a church once you become a three-year-old Christian. That's not the point. Not everyone has the gift of teaching in a sense of communicating biblical truth. However, here's what it does mean. That maturity in Christ should be producing mission for Christ. I'm going to say that again. Maturity in Christ should be producing mission for Christ. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Jesus said it best. In Matthew 28, listen to what he said. It's familiar. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this. You ready? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you catch 
what Jesus told them, teaching them. All disciples should be growing to a point of teaching others how to follow Jesus. This wasn't true with the audience of Hebrews. They were babies in the faith. They couldn't understand the comparison of Melchizedek, nor could they grow in their faith as God desired. Their growth had been stunted by their own immaturity. However, the weak Christian will never be able to do this. They will never listen. They will never learn. They will never lead. Can I show you this last one? They will never leave. You say, Danny, what do you mean? They'll never leave those basic principles that are there. Why? They're too comfortable. They don't want to. They don't want that challenge. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Let's jump. We're, we're moving. You ready? He says, therefore, let us leave. Does your Bible say that? Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. What's he saying? Clearly, the writer of Hebrews desires that we move on to maturity, that there is growth happening. The spiritual, healthy, grow. The regular, healthy, grow. Growth is a byproduct of health. This is why he wants us to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Is he saying forsake it? No. He's saying now that you've grown and you've learned, you don't have to be taught the ABCs anymore. How many of you who graduated from high school need somebody the next day to teach you the ABC song again? You don't. You learned it. How many of us as Christians still continue to wallow in the things that we learned years and years and years ago? We have not moved past in maturity to the things that God is wanting to teach us. As a matter of fact, he presents us with three categories that he would consider to be the basics that we should graduate from. I love, here's what Chuck Swindoll says in illustrating this truth. He says, Instead of moving up through grade school, passing into junior high, completing high school, and heading off to college, the Hebrew Christians were returning to kindergarten year after year. They should have been memorizing Shakespeare and doing calculus. Instead, they were singing the ABC song and stumbling over 2 plus 2. They failed to grow out of the fundamentals of the Christian faith and life, instead repeating over and over again the subjects of Christianity 101. Let me show you what he presents to us. They never leave. Danny, what do you mean? They never move past profession in Christ to actually following after Jesus. This is why he says in verse 1, move on. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. What's he mean? Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Danny, are you saying we don't need to do that? No, that's elementary basic principles every follower of jesus needs to realize that works-based salvation does not work it's all about faith in jesus it's repentance from that and faith toward god you shouldn't need to be reminded about that over and over and over again that happened a long time ago live in it that's what he's saying matter of fact paul says this in ephesians chapter 2 he begins that chapter talking about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins that we were lost in our sinfulness but he goes on to say for by grace you have been saved through faith there it is right not dead works but faith in god and this is not on your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works, so that no man can boast but don't miss what he says at the end of that section in ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 let me read it to you for we are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know what's happening to the weak? They never leave the faith in Jesus' decision to follow him. They never leave profession to begin living as the good work that God's made them to be. They never move forward. They stay. They stay. And they stay. Why? Because they never leave. They never move past procedures. This is what he says in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 6. And of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. Are, is that stuff not important, Danny? No, it is important, right? We need to understand basic church procedures and practices. He's probably talking about baptism and how that should work. He's probably talking about ordination and how new ministers rise up from the crop and go out to spread the gospel. Both of these are ways in which the church functions. But the problem is when we stay hung up in how these things happen and what we think is best and argue about these stupid procedures that the Bible doesn't even say we need to do the way that we say we need to do and then churches split and people get angry and the entire time nobody hears about Jesus. Why? Because we're weak in our faith. We never leave. We never move past profession to living out our faith. We never move past procedures to actually seeing Jesus become famous. We never move past possibilities. You say, Danny, what are you talking about? Look at what he says at the end of verse 2. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Danny, are these not important? Of course these are important. But what happens when the church of God begins to get stuck on biblical principles that we were never meant to fully understand and get sidetracked to the point that our faith never matures. Why spend so much time on things that we can only speculate about when we don't spend any time on the things that we know? You want to know why? Because we're weak in our faith. And we get caught up in things that don't matter. And we never listen. And we never learn. And we never lead. And we never leave. We stay there as a babe in the faith for our entire existence. Listen, I told you that wasn't going to be the fun part. It's going to be a little challenging. But if that's you, if that's me, we need to repent from staying stuck in the baby, shallow water end of the faith. He never, you start there. By all means, don't throw your three-year-old out into the deep end and say, good luck. Trust me, that's a horrible decision. You start them in the shallow end. But when they're an adult, they're not, they're not in the shallow end anymore. They're jumping off the diving board, right? This is what Paul, this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Move past. All right, this is the difficult part. You say, Danny, we haven't even got there yet and we're out of time. I know. There's two different ways that I want you to think about this next section of Scripture, starting in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. A lot of speculation about what these verses mean. A lot of controversy, a lot of arguments over what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. By the way, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. may have been Paul, that's traditionally who you know, we attribute the letter to Hebrews to, but we really don't know. So that's why I keep referencing the writer of Hebrews, whoever he may be, or she. Just kidding, probably a he. Anyway, we won't go there. But in this next text is what's considered the third major warning of the book of Hebrews. It's very challenging in its understanding. Now, there are two other warnings up until this point. One's in Hebrews chapter 2, one's in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm not so much concerned about those. But 
this warning might be the most well-known because of the controversy around interpreting what the writer of Hebrews is actually writing about. So we're going to attempt, as many have, to understand what the author meant by these next several verses. Now I want to give you a couple of guys who are much smarter than me just to help wrap your brain around the difficulty of these words. Listen to some of these scholars. Here's what they wrote. This is the naughtiest problem passage in Hebrews, if not the whole Bible. All right, so that's the challenge we're about to jump into. There have been innumerable attempts to provide an adequate explanation of these verses. That's what another guy wrote. This passage has led to extensive debate and has resulted in much misunderstanding. Probably shouldn't even look at it. William Barclay, here's what he wrote. This is one of the most terrible passages in Scripture. It's an interesting way to describe the controversy of these texts, right? Now, there are three dominant views on what this means. We're about to read it, I promise. I don't think, Danny, you forgot to read the Scripture. There are three dominant views. One of those is this. It could be about those who have lost their salvation. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 3. Let's read it. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible. Now, don't miss that word. That's one of those circle kind of wow. You don't hear that kind of absolute language all the time. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible, is what he says, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now listen to this illustration. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for, sake, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So now after reading that, and you've probably read this before, maybe even had questions about it before, a lot of people who are in this camp think, you know what, this is people who got saved and then decided they were no longer saved, and so they walked away. It could be that the writer of Hebrews is describing those who have lost their salvation. However, here's what I would say to you. If this interpretation is correct, we would have to throw out several other verses in the Bible that clearly state salvation can't be lost. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but if you want to write some of them down, you're welcome to. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, clearly communicate that salvation can't be lost. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verses 27 through 29. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Clearly, we'd have to throw away half of the Bible if we were going to believe that that was the case. So I'm here to tell you with, with, without any reservation, this does not reference people who can lose their salvation. So I would really suggest there are two dominant views if that's the case. Let me tell you the first one. Here it is, that the writer of Hebrews gives a word to the wicked. This would be the first stance that I would give you. Now, I'll preface, preface this with saying, I, I don't know if it's to the wicked or to what will be the wayward. So if you want to jump ahead, you're welcome to do that. 2A and 2B in your notes. The reason why is because it could be one way or the other. I'll let you decide as you wrestle with the scripture with me right now. It could be that this passage is dealing with people who claimed they knew Jesus, but really didn't. The Bible calls this, there's a word for it, it's called apostasy. That's the word. As a matter of fact, the word that Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews, possibly Paul, I'm sorry I keep saying Paul, but traditionally that's who it is. 
This, the word that's used for uh, fallen away in this text is only used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's never used anywhere else in the Bible, not the New Testament or the Old, except for the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's used in Ezekiel to reference the people of Israel who have fallen away. It's called the great apostasy. We will see this in the end times with what the Bible talks about with the Antichrist and apostasy and those who turn away. It's very likely that what the writer of Hebrews is suggesting because of the context and the Jewish nature to this writing, it's very possible that he's actually referencing Jewish believers who have dabbled a little bit in the things of the New Testament church but decided to go back to Judaism instead of walking forward with the church. So this would be a very different context than any of the people who are in this room because we're not Jews. And if that's the context, then he's talking about a word to the wicked. Now, John wrote this in 1 John 2.19, talking about apostasy and those who are wicked. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So if this is who the writer of Hebrews is talking about, let me show you a few things that he explains about the word that he gives to the wicked. The first one is that they are condemned. Now watch this, because it's a very interesting part to this text. They are condemned. Here's what this would mean in the context of Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, as the writer says, then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. In other words, seeing doesn't equal saving. At some point in time, they had been enlightened. They got a glimpse of Jesus and what he could do for him. They heard the message. They heard testimonies. They experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in worship, yet they did not commit their lives to Jesus. They fell away. Why? Because seeing doesn't equal saving. Savoring doesn't equal saving. This is why the writer says, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. The word for tasted is the word partake. Partake is not the same as possess. Let me show you the difference. I partake in many of the people in our church who possess a swimming pool. I do not possess a swimming pool. But I get the opportunity to partake in that. You see the difference? I partake, they possess. Very different, right? Some of you have toys, right? Like boats that I get to partake of. But I don't actually possess one myself. I can't afford that in my life right now. I don't have the time to utilize those things. I partake, but I do not possess. That's what's happened to these people. They heard the word preached. They experienced moving worship experiences. They witnessed People giving their lives to Jesus. They saw baptisms, but they never possessed faith in Jesus. They simply partook. They simply tasted. Here's what John Phillips writes about these people. A person may put the pot on the stove and throw in the ingredients for soup. As the meat and vegetables begin to simmer, he may put in his spoon, uh, put it in his spoon and taste it and decide it needs a little more seasoning or that it has too much salt. But there is a great deal of difference between tasting the soup and filling a bowl and enjoying it to the full. This is the description he would give to the wicked who have found their condemnation because seeing doesn't equal saving. Savoring doesn't equal saving. Sharing doesn't 
equal saving. You say, what do you mean? They have shared in the Holy Spirit. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. They shared in incredible moments of the Spirit's power, yet they still chose to walk away. They are condemned. Let me show you this one. They are calloused. This in verse 6. Look at it with me. Hebrews 6, 6. We're moving. You ready? And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now be clear about this. This is not the person who in ignorance doesn't realize what Jesus has done for him because the Holy Spirit has not drawn him to faith yet. That's not who the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's talking about the person who clearly knows. They've been enlightened. They've tasted. They've received the gift. They've experienced the moment. The Spirit has drawn them toward Jesus. They've dabbled in it for a, for a short period of time. And then because of their rejection, willful rejection, their heart becomes calloused almost to the point of Pharaoh where there is no turning back. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. In order for them to be saved, Jesus would have to die again. And here's what we know. He's not going to die again. And so he would say that person is impossible to be saved. That person has lost their opportunity. They are condemned. They are calloused. They are cursed. This is the illustration of the land and the rain. It doesn't produce a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Instead, it bears thorns and thistles. It is worthless and near to being cursed, and, in, and its end is to be burned. That doesn't sound good, does it? This is the word. He gives to the wicked. However, I want to suggest what I think this verse is talking about. Now, you don't have to go with what I think. By all means, study, look at it, decide for yourself. Very controversial text. We may not know until we stand before God and say, hey, first of all, who wrote Hebrews? Oh, cool. All right, we didn't have that one. Got you. What did he mean by this? This is a crazy passage of Scripture. What William Barclay says, a terrible passage of Scripture. Well, here's the 2B that I would say. This is the camp that I would fall in. I think what's happening here is that the writer of Hebrews is giving a word to the wayward. To the wayward. Not the wicked, although maybe, but to the wayward. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, up until this point in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews has been using the first personal plural in his pronouns. Let us leave. This we will do. Now the writer of Hebrews moves to using the third person plural in the case of those to restore them again to repentance. It could be that the writer of Hebrews knows his audience hasn't fallen into the category of not being restored. In other words, they're not there yet. They're not the wicked. They're not the condemned. They're not the callous. They're not the cursed. Instead, they are wayward. They may be on their way, but they're not there yet. They haven't gotten to a point of it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Now, it could, it could be that the writer of Hebrews is warning believers who have backslidden in their faith. The context of these verses is the spiritual maturity of the believer. The writer of Hebrews is giving a warning to believers not to backslide in their faith, but to move toward growth. This is why the word to the weak is so challenging to our hearts. If you felt conviction over that discussion from the writer of Hebrews, you know what that means? You don't want to be in the camp of the weak. 
You want to move forward in maturity and spiritual growth. You probably felt the same challenges on your heart that I felt on mine. Why? Because though we may be wayward at times, we don't want to stay there. We don't want to be too far gone. We want the promises that God has placed on us even if we are weak. That's probably the context in which the writer of Hebrews is talking about. If a believer chooses not to move towards spiritual maturity, it will be harder and harder, eventually impossible for them to experience growth. Here's what Chuck Swindoll wrote. He said, the encouragement to press on to maturity is written to those who have been truly born again, not to those on the outside of the family of God. Also, the terminology enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, are all labels we would most uh, simply, we would all simply use to describe Christians, not unbelievers. So then what's he talking about? Well, it's very possible that he's referencing several other places in the Bible. I wish we had more time, maybe on another day, but there are several moments in scripture where we encounter people that though they trust in Jesus, though they're following him, though they've given their life to him, at some point in time, they have fallen away. At some point in time, they had backslidden in their faith. At some point in time, they had gotten to a point where their hearts were so calloused that they never moved forward anymore into uh, spiritual maturity. They got stuck in some kind of rut. And on the rare occasion, there are those who got stuck to a point that Jesus removed his very presence from their lives. Listen to this in Revelation 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, listen to this. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That sounds pretty serious, right? Revelation 2.16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now these are extreme cases, but this is probably why the writer of Hebrews uses such a very limited vocabulary by using the phrase fallen away to describe these people. It's words only used here and nowhere else because it's probably that rare. So what happens when a believer won't listen to the discipline of God and turn to repentance? Do they lose their salvation? Do they go to hell even though they gave their life to Jesus? Here's what I would say to you. No, I don't think so. In fact, this could be why the writer of Hebrews includes the illustration in verses 6. I mean, in chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. Look at them again, but look at it a little bit differently. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now I want you to look at this illustration a little bit differently. The land that doesn't produce a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, but rather bears thorns and thistles, will eventually be burned. But why, typically, do you burn thorns and thistles on your property? Why do you burn unwanted vegetation? Is it ultimately to destroy the land so that you can no longer use it? Of course not. You're not trying to waste something that is good. You burn it to remove the unwanted produce and begin again with good produce. I believe. That's what the writer of Hebrews is referring to here. I think he's referring to the discipline of God in the life of the believer on this side of eternity or in the next. You say, what do you mean? Well, for some, God may choose to discipline you in a way on this side of eternity that pushes you back to him. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a situation where this happens. 
Now, I don't know what the discipline will be or how far God will go, but he will discipline his children in order to get them back on track. Some of you may have experienced that type of discipline before. But there is an occasion in the New Testament. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where someone in the church, it's a despicable sin, he's sleeping around with his, with his dad's wife. You've read this passage probably before. It's very unique. And in this text, here's what it says. It says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What in the world is happening in the church in Corinth? Well, it seems as though repentance wasn't going to happen in this guy's life. And so it was better for him to die than to remain in sin. God took him into eternity. Listen, it could be that this discipline will be experienced more on the other side of eternity than this one. Not in the sense that you will be punished in heaven, but that you will experience sorrow for wasting your life on this earth. Let me give you this text really quick. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. This is all of us. If the work that, he, if, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, so all this together, let me put a bow on it. I wonder how many backslidden Christians are in our church, are us, who will experience discipline in this life or the next due to our unwillingness to repent and follow the ways of Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. Danny, does this mean that there can be Christians among us who aren't living for Jesus? Friends, it's rare. This is not the normal case. But I would tell you yes. You say, Danny, how do you know? I've been there. I've had seasons where I wasn't. Do I think God forsook me? That I was no longer his child? No, you've had plenty of days where you were mad at your own kids. You didn't even want to look at them, right? But they were still your kids. You loved them. They were still yours. That was the same for me. The Bible speaks in various places about the carnal Christian, someone who has surrendered their life to Jesus but has chosen to backslide into living again like the world. In these rare cases, a believer has drifted so far that they no longer hear Jesus calling them back. They will be saved but will experience great loss as they have no reward in heaven when they stand before their master. Intense, right? You agree? Who wants to be that person? <laughs> yeah, none of us. Can I just tell you out of all that craziness? That's why the writer of Hebrews is sharing this. Don't be the weak. Don't be the wicked. Don't be the wayward. That's not how you met Jesus. In fact, let me show you this last one. I'm done. Here they are, just so you can have them. He gives a word to the wise. He leaves us, even though all that's pretty heavy and terrible, he leaves us with this final encouragement. Look at verse 9, Hebrews chapter 6. Though we speak in this way. In other words, though that was all really heavy and difficult, and you're all thinking, Danny, why'd you walk through all that? We hate you. Okay, here's why. Because though we speak in this way, though I told you all those harsh things, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. What's he saying? Spiritual maturity can be distinguished. You have it or you don't. You know him or you don't. Check your own life out. 
Look to where, this is a word to the wise. Spiritual maturity can be distinguished. Spiritual maturity can be described. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. It can be described. Are you following after Jesus? Are you serving in his name? Are you seeking after him? Do you feel the conviction as you read these verses that I felt when I was talking about them? If so, your spiritual maturity can be described. Where are you? Weak? Wayward? Wise? Where do you fall in the scope that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? Lastly, spiritual maturity can be developed. Look at verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. All of you. So that you may not be sluggish. You know what that word sluggish is? It's the same word he used earlier in the passage. He doesn't want you to be sluggish. He doesn't want you to be dull of hearing, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It can be developed. If you are weak in the faith now, stop it. Move forward. If you are wayward, Danny, I've been in a rut. I've fallen to the side. I had not been where I need to be. Stop it. Move forward. It can be developed. He gives a word to the wise of those who want to follow him. Move deeper into the waters. The shallow end was just the beginning. Go out. Get deeper. Fall in love with Jesus. I promise you, you will not regret it. Listen, the stern warning is followed by great encouragement. The writer of Hebrews knew that they wouldn't end up like the backsliders if they continued to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, I want to end with this. I read this story. I thought it was fascinating. Help me understand what the writer is doing in this moment. It's a memory from one of my favorite commentary writers. Here's what he shares. He said, years ago, we lived near an old juvenile correctional facility, right? A, a, a jail for young people. He said it was a grim old structure with stone walls that were black with age. It was a dark, ominous place mounted on the wall were glass enclosed towers where armed guards sat looking over the yard. Here's what he says. He said, one day when we were driving by, my son Kurt was staring out the window at that scary place. I could tell that he was wondering what it was. I tried to make it as simple as I could for a first grader. Here's what I said. Apparently, his son was in first grade at the time. Obviously, he was a little terrified by the guards with guns on the towers. Son, that's where they put kids who don't obey their parents. Any of y'all made that mistake of making a joke that your kids took literally? Yeah, I've been there. Here's what he went on to say. He said, I could tell that got his attention. I can still remember those big eyes batting as they followed the wall around the corner. And then he asked questions like, Daddy, how often do kids disobey before they put them in there? And if you say you're sorry, will that keep you out of there? His voice broke and he began to cry. I realized I had scared him and couldn't just leave it at that. So I reached over, put my arms around my son, pulled him over close to me and said, Kurt, you'll never be behind that wall. He said, promise, Daddy? And he cried a little longer. That night in prayer together, we talked to God about the whole experience. I'll never forget it. I remember how in the prayer, he asked the Lord to help this daddy never forget his promise to his little boy. And he's never been behind that wall. Though that facility served as a strong warning of where extreme rebellion can lead, I didn't for a second believe my son was heading in that direction. In my encouragement, I was saying to him, as the writer of Hebrews put it, Son, I'm sure of better things for you. Friends, that's why the warning's in there. You say, Danny, is God saying that I'm worthless and I'm beyond repair and he can't love me? No, 
The warning is in there so you don't go down that path. Don't be the wicked, the wayward. Don't be the weak. Be the wise. He knows there are better things for you. Choose the better things.